Well, good morning. I'm Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a delight to uh, be here with you this morning to worship. And we're in a series entitled, This Passage Changed My Life. And um, so I chose this passage from Revelation, which some of you might be surprised about that. Like, why would you choose such a weird book um, as your favorite passage? But I hope by the end of the the talk this morning, um, you'll understand more about that. Um, I hope some of you have had an opportunity to be on some trips and vacations this summer. Our family had an opportunity to go out to California and we took a cruise uh, out to uh, Catalina Island as a part of that holiday. And we were with some younger friends and uh, with part of that meant that they had younger kids. Uh, we have one daughter, Madeline, who's sitting right here. She's 16. Uh, but these friends had little kids. And um, I don't know how many of you here this morning have little kids, um, imagine quite a few. Um, some of you have had little children before and all of you have been little children uh, at some point in the past. But um, you know, it was, it was eye-opening to be with a younger family with younger children on this vacation. We're in this beautiful place with all these magical things to do on this uh, holiday trip. And uh, as we were walking the streets of beautiful Catalina Island, uh, I heard over and over and over again, our friend's young son, I'm changing his name to protect the innocent, uh, I'll call him Johnny, over and over, no matter where we were and how beautiful it was and how amazing the vacation was, all he would say, and he would refer to himself in the third person always, because that's what little kids do, uh, he would say, Johnny wants ice cream. <laughs> and I heard that like 25 times as we walked the street, Johnny wants ice cream. You know, like, well, don't you want to go do this amazing thing, swim in the ocean, do all these things? Johnny wants ice cream. And uh, what I realized is the tendency of young children, right, is to become immersed in their smaller story. Like whatever their desire is, whatever their need is, whatever their want is, that is the center of the universe. And they're going to let you know about it, sometimes in the third person. And um, the truth is that we aren't much different, are we? We're not much different. You see, the tendency in our life is for our smaller story to become the bigger story, we forget that there's a bigger story unfolding all around us all the time. And our troubles, our pain, our difficulties, our desires become the center of our life and the center of attention. But the trouble is that life is too painful and too difficult to be held by our little stories. The truth is that we need a bigger story to give us context and to guide us into the life that we all long for. And so the Apostle John, uh, he knew this when he wrote the book of Revelation. And he wrote to seven churches in the first century as they faced unbelievable persecution. If you don't know about the history of the church at this time in the first century, uh, it was a terribly difficult time to be a follower of Jesus. There was an emperor, his name was Domitian, and uh, he hated Christians and he persecuted them um, in every way possible, in some unimaginable ways. And so uh, Christians during this period of, of the tr history of the church were killed in the arenas by wild animals. They, they were covered in pitch and tar, and they were lit on fire while they were still alive. They were impaled on stakes. And finally, they were crucified. They would they'd be crucified by the hundreds and put along the roadsides in and out of Rome so that anyone going into the city would get the message that if you're a follower of Jesus, you are going to suffer and you are going to die. And so John is writing this letter to this people 
who were living through difficulty. And what he understood is, is what we all understand is that we need a bigger story to give context. Because if this is all there is, if pain and difficulty and sorrow and grief is all there is on this side of life, then all is lost. And you see, Christian maturity is growing in our capacity to place our smaller stories in the context of God's bigger story. Let me say that again. Christian maturity is growing in our capacity to place our smaller stories in the context of God's bigger story. And it's a story that you were made for. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. And that's why Revelation is such a beautiful letter. It's not a letter that's written primarily as a book of symbols that we're meant to decipher so that we can figure out the day and the time which Jesus returns. It's not that. What it is, it's a, it's, it's a letter of encouragement to a suffering people. And, and, and maybe we're not being impaled and crucified on the roadways, but it is difficult on this side of eternity to follow Jesus. And it is difficult to live. And I don't know what's happening in your smaller story right now. I don't know what burdens you carried in to the room today, but I know something that we ha all have in common is that life is difficult and that there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of sorrow. There's a lot of mystery. There's a lot we don't understand. And so we need this bigger story and we're given one and that's the beauty of the scriptures. Did you know that the scriptures are one story beginning to end? Did you know that? From Genesis all the way to Revelation, it's one story. And it's God's one true story of the world. And, and I've always been a big story person and I like starting with the end of the story. You know, how does it all end? Where does it all go? Because if we can keep our eyes fixed on that, it'll give context for what we're facing in the here and the now. So let's get into the story. What is this big story all about? How does the big story of the world end? And how should that give us context for our lives? Well, the first thing you need to know is that the story that you were made for is a story of transformation. And I love this word transformation because it's a story of change. It's a story of becoming. It's a story of newness. And so we're told in, in Revelation 21 that uh, the story is a transformation of several things, but first of all, it's a transformation of the physical world. That the big story, the way it all ends, is a transformation of the physical world. And I don't know how you were taught as a Christian, maybe some of you are not Christians, maybe some of you have never heard uh, you know, the, the orthodox kind of story of the Christian faith, but I know that many of us have have taught or have thought like the end of our story, the end of our life is really fixated on this idea that we at some point die physically, that we're buried in the ground and that our spirit ascends and is with God in, in heaven, right? And, and that's kind of the end of the story. That's what we have to look forward to. And, and for many of us, we've never thought much beyond that point, but we should. And that's what I want to talk to you about today, that there's more, there's so much more to look forward to, that dying and spiritually going to be in heaven with, with God is not the end of the story. Then what is? John writes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was also gone. You see, at the end of the story, the physical earth doesn't all just burn up. It doesn't all just go away. Somehow, mysteriously, it is transformed. It's transformed 
There's a newness to it, and it's not newness just in the aspect of time, it's a newness in aspect of quality, that there's a new quality to the new heaven and the new earth. And the best way I can describe it is like this. Think about an acorn. An acorn, you put it in the ground, and then what happens, given the right circumstances? It, it actually dies, right? It decays and it dies, but as that process of death happens, something mysterious goes on, and a new life is birthed from it. And the acorn, this small acorn, is transformed into a majestic and a beautiful oak tree. And so it is with the old heaven and the old earth that somehow in the mystery of God, we're told that it's transformed like that acorn and it becomes new. And there's a new heaven and a new earth. And there's multiple aspects of the newness. We're told one thing is that the sea is no more. And I thought, what a strange thing to know that the sea is no more, which kind of made me sad because I like the beach. Like, there's no more sea. But what's it talking about? You see, in the Hebrew scriptures, the sea was always a place of death. Think about it. How does God destroy the world in Noah's time? Water, right? The waters cover everything and kill everything, and there's death and there's destruction. And the sea is seen as a place of, of mystery and death and darkness. And if you think about the story of the Israelites crossing into the promised land, what, what happens to the Egyptians as they try to follow them? through the Red Sea, they're drowned. They're enveloped in the sea. And so the sea is a place of death and destruction. And so I think uh, what John is saying here is this vision that he sees, there's no more death, there's no more destruction, there's no more place of darkness in the physical earth that somehow it's gone, it's changed. The second thing we understand from this passage, but if we put into context the, uh, some of what we know about the resurrection, is that we know the new heaven and the new earth, right? They have marks of the old heaven and the old earth, but somehow they're made new. And the best way that we can understand this is to look at the firstborn from the dead, which is who? Jesus. Remember at the resurrection of Jesus when the disciples first met him, that they struggled to recognize him. There was something different about him, but as they got closer to them and as he spoke to them and as he interacted with them, they realized this is the Lord, but there was something different about him. We know that he could walk through walls. There was a different quality about his body, and yet he bore the marks of his physical body. He had uh, the piercing marks from the crucifixion still in him. And so we know that in the new heaven and the new earth, just as in Jesus experienced the resurrection and had a new body, it, it wasn't that his old body just disappeared and went away and was burned up and he got a brand new body. No, it was a resurrected body. And so part of the definition of resurrection is transformation. It's taking the old thing and transforming it into the new thing. And so we know that the new heaven and the new earth will look similar to the current heaven and the current earth, but there'll be something new about it. Well, what is new about the physical world? Well, first we're told uh, this image of a city in verse 2, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. In our current state, right now, there's heaven and there's earth and there's separation. In the new heaven and the new earth, there's no separation, and it's described as a holy city, it's a holy city. It's one place. It's God with his people. And so we know in the new heaven and the new earth, there is no physical separation between God 
and his people. And we see that it's a city. And if you remember back to the very beginning of the story in the book of Genesis, God created everything. He made people. He made this beautiful garden where they dwelled with him. And there's a, I love the line. It says that God walked with the people in the cool of the day. And that was always God's desire, to be with his people in a physical world, embodied, walking with them in the cool of the day. But we know that sin entered the world, human rebellion entered the world, the the man and the woman were cast out of the perfect garden, and suddenly there was separation, and God was no longer physically with his people. And then the whole story of the scriptures are a story of God redeeming and pursuing his people, running after them, And so we're told and we remember here that the end of the story isn't God's physically separated from us, but it's going back to the garden, that very first image, God walking with his people in the cool of the day, and he never lost that vision. But we're told now the vision isn't for a garden, it's not a garden descending from heaven. Instead, it's a holy city, the new Jerusalem. You know, cities are amazing things, aren't they? They're meant to be. A a city is supposed to be a place of human flourishing. It's supposed to be uh, the height of human ingenuity, the the, the place where all of our technology comes to bear in a way that facilitates our life, where we don't have to worry about security, we don't have to worry about meeting our needs, where society is structured in such a way that it gives all of us life. But have you visited a big city in the United States recently? Are they totally places of human flourishing? No. Uh, I was recently in Portland, Oregon. How many have been to Portland before? Uh, We used to live in Seattle. I've been to Portland many times through the years. Uh, I went about six weeks ago, and it was really sad what I saw, because Portland's got so much beauty. You can see Mount Hood. It's got amazing coffee, amazing food trucks. The food truck scene is amazing. I think they should bring something like that to Charlotte. Um, but there's so much destruction. You know, there was people right outside of our four-star hotel smoking crack right on, the, right on the streets. You see, on this side of eternity, cities are not places of flourishing, but they're meant to be. And we have this beautiful image that John gives us that what we have to look forward to in the bigger story is a city, but it's not a city made by man. It's a city made by God. And think about this for just a second, that God's plan is to make the perfect place for human flourishing and then to bring that place down to us. Doesn't that tell us so much about the character of the God that we serve? That it's not us going to be with God. That's not the dream. The dream is God coming to us. And it's always been that way. It was that way in Genesis. It was that way when Jesus came into the story. Emmanuel, God with us. And so imagine just for a minute, this isn't in the realm of theology. Think for a second that your small story can find context in this bigger story where at some point in human history, whether that's next week or a billion years from now, that God will bring a perfect place, a city, a new Jerusalem for human flourishing. He'll bring it to us. And he says it will be like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. What a strange image, a city as a bride. Why would 
Why would John describe the city as a bride? If you think about a wedding and you think about the scriptures, there's one word that comes to mind, that's the word covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is a promise. And we know through the scriptures that God makes multiple covenants with his people, and these are promises. And God always promises the same thing, that he is going to be the one to make all the sad things untrue. He is gonna be the one to restore the relationship of people to himself. And we understand now that he is the one who's gonna make even the physical creation new again, but only better. I don't know what you're facing right now in your small story when it comes to the physical world. When it comes to your physical body, what pain you're suffering. Maybe you're suffering disease. Maybe in the physical world, you're, you're just struggling materially right now in some way. You see, in our small stories, we struggle in the physicality of life in so many different ways. But as you think about your small stories, you think about your struggle, I want you to remember this image that John gives us, that there's one day going to be something new, something better for the old heaven and the old earth. The way the world works now is going to go away and it's going to be transformed into something new and glorious and it's going to be made for our human flourishing. Well, we're told, secondly, that not only uh, when God finally ends history and comes to be with his people will there be this beautiful city, this place of human flourishing where Physically, everything will be restored and beautiful and good, but also, secondly, that there'll be a transformation of our relationship with God in a profound way. Verse three, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. And now you might be saying to yourself, isn't God with us now? And the answer is yes and no. We know as Christians that uh, God did come and walk among us, and his name was Jesus. And he came and he lived the perfect life. He showed us what it meant to be truly human, and he gave us a pathway to be restored in our relationship with God. He said, whoever confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart in Jesus is reconnected with God, is made new. But then he left. And he went back to heaven and he sent his spirit to be with us. And that's how we live as Christians today, as a people who have access to redemption through Christ and his finished work on the cross, but who are still disconnected physically from God. As I was thinking about this concept, I thought about uh, when my wife Janet and I were first dating. Now this is in the 90s and as some of you will uh, remember this, some of you will find this hard to believe, but this was an age before email. Um, we didn't have cell phones. This is, we had a payphone in the hallway. You had to put actual quarters in there. You had calling cards. But the main way that Janet and I communicated, because I was in New York and she was in North Carolina, was by letter. We actually wrote letters to each other. And we wrote these letters and we put them in the mail and there was time delay and you would, you know, like the most exciting part of my day as a 19 year old was going to the mailbox and to see if there was a letter from Janet. Um, and if there was, it was a great day. And if there wasn't, I was, I was living in devastation that day. 
But I was thinking about this dynamic that, you know, um, in human relationships, like having a long distance relationship and writing letters to each other is good, but it's not the dream, is it? And, and in those days, we, do, we would have said, we're in a relationship, we're together, but we weren't really. She was in North Carolina and I was in West Point and, and, and there was a physical separation between us and it, it was something that wasn't quite right. And two weeks after I graduated from college, I, I came back down to North Carolina and we went to the Mary Kay Cathedral. Do you know what that is? That's Calvary Church. Um, that's why I'm from Charlotte, so I can say that. We were going to Forest Hill, but they only had a gym, and Janet said, I'm not getting married in a gym. And so we went to Calvary, and we got married, and it, we got married in that giant place, and we had a lot of people at our wedding, maybe two or 300, but we took up like one row uh, in, the, in the front row. But I'll never forget being in that giant place, that beautiful church on that wedding day, and had all this time where we were, I was in a relationship with Janet, and we were writing these letters back and forth, but it wasn't quite right, and then there was that day that I stood at the altar, and those giant doors, like four football fields away, opened, and there she was, my bride, dressed in her wedding dress, and she came forward, and we began our real life together, joined physically together. And as I thought about this image, that's the image that the Apostle John gives us, is the age that we live in now where, yes, we belong to God. Yes, God is with us. His spirit is in us. We can talk to him and have access to him, and he gives us his word to teach us about him. And, and there's real relationship there, but it's not the dream it's not the dream for his relationship with us. He wants more. And the more is right here in the text. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. You see, God wants to be with us not just spiritually, he made us as physical beings, that we have physical bodies, and he made us to live in a physical world. And the dream at the end of history is not that we go and spiritually leave our bodies and go float and hover in a space made for God, but not made for us. The dream is that God brings the perfect flourishing city made for human flourishing to us, and that he is with us physically, for all of eternity, and it's a beautiful image of the city as a bride coming down. God proclaims that his new home will be with his people, and you see that word with, it's, it's so important because it's what you long for in your small story, and I think there's so much pain that so many of us have in our small stories right now, today, because of this word with, is that we desire to be with one another in a way that doesn't cause us pain. We desire for our relationships to breathe life into us. We desire for our relationships with one another and with God to echo the truth that we are worthy of being with. But so many of us have faced difficulty in this part of our life, haven't we? 
and some of you are facing that now, is that there's brokenness in relationships. And, and maybe some of you came in here today and you're wondering, where is God in the midst of my suffering, in the midst of the thing that I'm going through right now? I know that God is there, but I don't feel him with me now in a meaningful way. And to that, I would say, hold on. There's something better coming. You see, this passage is a fulfillment of the ancient text in Isaiah As surely as my new heavens and new earth will remain, so you will always be my people with a name that will never disappear, says the Lord. And I want you to catch this, that you know that your identity is in your withness. It's God with you, that he desires to be with you and he will be with you. And you ought to keep that in view with whatever you're facing right now. It's not the end. Whatever loneliness you're facing right now, whatever struggle you're facing right now in your relationships, there's something better coming. And that something better is God with you physically. Well, number three, we we know that the big story that gives us context for our smaller stories isn't just a transformation of the physical world or a transformation of our relationship with God, but It's also a transformation of our difficulties, verse four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. This was a really important word for me this week. Uh, I went to a funeral service just yesterday for a dear friend. And Um, As I sat in the church and I I listened to the pastor and his loved ones tell stories about his life and he had an amazing life and he was an amazing person who knew Jesus. Um, But they had, part of it was this slideshow of his life and they showed all these pictures from different seasons of my friend's life. And as I watched that and as I spoke to his widow and his children and hugged them and as I watched them grieve and cry, I thought and I kept thinking, this can't be real. How could he be gone? How can this be? You see, on this side of eternity, there is so much pain. There's so much difficulty. Death is certain. It's coming. And sometimes in the day in, day out of our life, we, we forget that. And, and we just, our world is, is the world. And then other times we remember it too much in our death and our sorrow and our pain are right at the center of our stories. But this is an encouragement to us that at some point, God comes to us in a physical way, in a physical city to be with us. And the result of that is there's no more death, no more crying and no more pain that he himself will wipe away our tears. C.S. Lewis said it this way, he said, one day, God will make all the sad things become untrue. And so we look forward to this transformation of our difficulties and it ought to give us a big hope. One, because it's not up to you. You don't have to solve your life. It's not about making the perfect life without pain. It's not about just pursuing comfort at every turn. It's about remembering this big story that there will be a transformation one day. Was you might be listening to this and you might be thinking, that's all great. Um, Maybe that's true, maybe that's not true. 
but I'm still in my life, I'm still in my small story here. How do I access this new life, this new perspective now as I sit in my small story? And, and John gives us the answers in the last part of the passage. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And he also said, it is finished. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings and I will be their God and they will be my children. You see, the first thing that you need to notice and pay attention to here is his words, look, I am making everything new. You see, new life is a gift of grace. It's not something that you do by your performance. Number two, that he is outside of time. And, and this image that he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega are the first and the last letters in the Greek alphabet. And here's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I'm the only one who could be at the beginning of time and I'm the only one that can be at the end. Think about that for a minute. In our small stories, we forget that. And life becomes about us and we forget there's one who is at the beginning of time and there's one who is at the end of time and he's at the bookends of human history and he's giving us context for our small story and he's calling us to remember that he is the one that has the perspective on your life. He is the only one who can see all of your days and make sense of them. And remember, he is making everything new again. Now, the most important line in this whole passage is this. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. To all who are thirsty. And this word thirst, John uses two other times uh, in his writings to the church. And, and the first time is uh, when he was at the well. Jesus was at the well uh, with the prostitute. You remember the story from John 4? And we're told that Jesus goes to this well and there's a prostitute there and she's living in deep shame and fear and so she's isolated and alone and Jesus meets her at this place and she's there to get physical water to meet her physical needs for her life. And, and Jesus says to her, I can give you water that you would never be thirsty again. And it's confusing to her and then Jesus proceeds to tell her everything about her smaller story. And there's so much in this story that resonates with our passage today because the Alpha and the Omega, the one at the beginning and the end, the, was the one at the well with this woman who was struggling in her small story. And this one who was at the beginning of history knew every minute detail of this woman's life. And he says to her, I can give you water that you would never be thirsty again. What is he talking about? He's talking about our passage today, that if we follow Jesus, if we trust in him, that there is new life that comes through him by his grace, that as we trust in him, we find life that's the spring of life that gives life over and over and over, no matter what we face in our smaller story, he has the water of life. But then most profoundly in John chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus knew that his mission was now finished as he hung on the cross dying. To fulfill scripture, he said these words, I 
am thirsty. And as I thought about that passage, you know, I always thought he was just thirsty, like he wanted some water, he was dying, he was on the cross. But you know, this is a really profound line from Jesus, I am thirsty. Jesus is crying out with a cosmic thirst. He's calling out with the thirst of all of humanity because at that moment he was disconnected from the Father. The weight of the sin of the world lay on his shoulders and in that moment he experienced the tragedy of being completely disconnected from God. And in that moment, he cried out, I am thirsty. I'm experiencing death and I need life. And so, as we sit in our smaller stories today, the path, the way that we access this larger story today is that we have to be thirsty, just like at the woman at the well, just like Jesus. All we have to do is be thirsty to come with our need And I wanted to read um, lyrics to Come Ye Sinners, which is a hymn based on Isaiah 55 as a way of closing. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance. Every grace that brings you nigh. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Friends, wherever you are today in your small story, would you remember that there's a beautiful big story to give context to that? And all you have to do is to come in need. Come with your burdens. Come weary. That's all he requires is our thirst. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have come to make all things new. We thank you for this vision of new life that you give to us. Lord, and I pray for my friends in the room today that whatever each one is facing, Lord, Would you help each of us not to just be drawn into our small stories that are so full of pain and suffering and despair, but Lord, help us to remember your big story, that you're coming to make all things new, and that all we need to do is to be thirsty, to remember that we have need, and to remember you're the only one who can meet our deepest needs. Lord, we thank you for the gift of life, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.